Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, this is uh, Paul Axton, and this morning I'm here with Jason and Vanji Rodenbeck. And we're going to at least touch upon or discuss the recent Netflix film, The Two Popes. I don't know that we're grand experts on this, but it did. it's prompted a lot of conversation among us. We're going to look at it as a kind of basis to discuss several things in connection with uh, Christianity as it, uh, it exists today, because the movie seems to set up uh, the clash, a kind of civilizational clash, almost. How would you How would you introduce the movie, Jason? Probably really important from the outset to say we're not Catholic or Roman Catholic. That is, I think that probably the thing that is the most striking, at least for me, is in as much as we're not Roman Catholic, there was very little about the conversation between Ratzinger and Bergoglio that we couldn't look at and say, oh, wow, that's stuff that we're even folks in evangelicalism. And those are conversations that we're having at Plowshares. That, I think those are the things that, that's there. But if, I, if we're going to summarize the film, I suppose I would say this is a, a look at the transition from Pope Benedict, who was uh, Ratzinger, the German Pope who uh, was made Pope in the early 2000s when, uh, after a scandal, decided he was going to step down, which is kind of unheard of. The church went to a more progressive Pope, which is Bergoglio, who became Pope Francis. And basically it's just a film about a conversation between Ratzinger and Bergoglio. And you see a lot of Bergoglio's story. What really emerges is there's a um, analogy with the kind of political climate that we're in now, not just in America, but in Europe, in England. There's a huge push to keep poor people out <laughs> because they're a drain on our economies. But it sort of emerges in Bergoglio's vision of the gospel that the truth is our economies are designed to keep certain people poor. The idea that we build walls to keep out poor people is kind of a tacit admission that our economy requires them to be poor so that we can be comfortable. So issues like comfort, the issues of scarcity versus abundance. I think one of the things after watching it the, the first time, we got about 20 minutes in and I asked Jason to pause it, and I said, this movie is everything. <laughs> this movie's just everything. And then when I got done with it the first time, I said, everyone should have to watch this. And, and part of it certainly is beautiful about reconciliation during a time where we're feeling so completely divided, even inside evangelicalism, feeling so divided. But set within that time and within that framework, there are the same kind of themes that seem to come up all the time. Justice, righteousness, um, the role of certainty um, versus faith, the idea of power and the role of power as you are 
carrying out your faith, especially as a leader in the faith. I worked with a minister one time that said he was always trying to lend his credibility in one direction or another um, because he didn't like to say he was trying to push his power in one direction or another. But, but even in that, he was very honest about if I, if I lend all my credibility, quote unquote, to this issue, I won't have any left when I need to fight this. So for those reasons, even though this is set within the Roman Catholic Church that certainly has a rich tradition that I know very little about, those central themes of humanity, um, another one being giving value to humanity and enemy love um, just seemed to come up with us and at Plowshares and in every class I've been a part of at Plowshares over and over and over again. And that's why I thought it would make a really great cinema preci or at least a conversation for us. How true the two popes are. I mean, how, uh, you know, whether this, the truth of the story and the the fictionality may be two different things, but I don't think they are. I think there there is a an overlap. Now, obviously, no one knows the conversation between the two popes, but just the representation or the symbolic significance of Francis uh, all the way through. You know that he is the first mm-hmm. Jesuit. He is the first pope from the American continent. He's the first from South America. You know, there's so many firsts. He is of European extraction. I think his father, in fact, was an Italian immigrant to Argentina. And then the taking of the name Francis, of course, it's a, an unprecedented name for popes. Uh, no other pope has ever had the name. But, of course, it is a kind of resourcement focused on complete dispossession you know he gives up his Mm -hmm. own wealth and a kind of critic you know francis was in his time a critic of the wealth and corruption of the catholic church that all i think is highly significant in the portrayal that we have of of francis because he's so influenced by francis i kind of thought why isn't he a franciscan as opposed to a jesuit My understanding is that the Jesuits had a much more violent kind of heritage. Uh, He seems much more of a Franciscan than a Jesuit to me. Mm -hmm. Again, in the movie, I think there's a bit of darkness connected with Francis. And I think people in Argentina were glad that they didn't pull back from portraying that darkness. It's a little bit unclear exactly what Bergoglio's role in the right-wing junta there in uh, Argentina was. In some way, he left two of his friends out, uh, hanging out to dry and were tortured. And so he himself was true to a a more conservative right-wing. And that's the portrayal, you know, that's the ironic portrayal of these two popes. Benedict, in fact, had started life as a liberal and then swings right and Francis starts as a conservative. And because of the tragedy, it's significant that they portray that. And maybe that's, you know, maybe the Jesuits in Argentina were unusual in their dedication to working with the poor. But maybe that then, that tragedy, whatever that consisted of, however that unfolded, 
it resulted in a real-world disciplining of him for a two-year period. I think that there's an overlap with fiction and the reality overlap there, and that he comes out of that with a new focus on dispossession, poverty, and identifying, you know, that he really does take up the, the cause, yeah. not of a liberation theology, but mm-hmm. of, of identifying with the poor. One of the, the parallels that Benedict has at the beginning that Pope Francis's story in the flashback completely mirrors is, is the idea that there's quotes from, from Benedict about 15 minutes in of him, the saying that he was a watchdog of the faith mm-hmm. um, and an intellectual and a protector of the, the doctrine of the faith, that it was about protection. And there's this idea in with, that. And con- contrasted with a push to be progressive about women, gays, that kind of stuff. So. Yeah, sacraments, um, distribution of sacraments. So with that idea comes that a scarcity mm-hmm. in that you are defending something that is, that is threatened. And at the flashback, when Pope mm-hmm. Francis is dealing with the dictatorship, he is in charge of all the priests. And in that scene, keeps saying, my role is to protect mm-hmm. this order. And again, it was protecting and defending. And both of those postures are out of fear and a scarcity in that part of safeness of, for Pope Benedict later, a scarcity of what he believed was sanctity mm-hmm. and um, being true, saying that there was only one unchanging eternal truth. Uh, that yeah. there's a underlying fear in both of those scenarios that shoves out peace, even when with Pope Francis, I mean, if you could make a legitimate case for trying to join yourself to the powers, it would be because of the the physical danger that your friends were in. It, that joining with that power, still did nothing. The good he was trying to do was no match for the powers and what the powers were going to do anyway. And after that, they come into this idea with the liberal versus conservative flows right into the idea of compromise and change and what the difference is between compromise and change. And you see Pope Francis trying to to wrestle through, no, I didn't compromise, I I changed, I moved, while Pope Benedict is saying, no, there's there's no they're the same thing. Mm-hmm. And the wrestling between those two ideas, and I think the tension that's always there um, in between those two ideas, I've not gotten to see played out as well in a conversation. And certainly with the beauty of movies, I get to see Pope Francis's now mind in light of everything he had experienced. Um, that's, that's beautiful because when I'm talking to someone across the table from them, I don't get to experience their entire past history in a 30 minute span. So I can understand why they may have changed one idea into another. But the beauty of the cinema was that you did get to understand and it helped you kind of delineate that idea of compromise and change, which I too have dwelt in that cave and worked inside that system. And that alone 
is worth watching the whole movie for to help us, I think, articulate compromise and change and mercy and also understand power. In the two popes, there's almost two hermeneutics at work. One would be to understand the role of the church and scripture and authority, all in terms of kind of a stasis in which eternal truths uh, remain the same. And the other, uh, a more historical understanding in which there's an, an unfolding realization and illumination of the significance of that authority and that it plays out differently mm-hmm. in different historical moments. And, and something Vanji was, was hitting on that I think is really vital in that the, they portray in the film is yeah, Ratzinger or Pope Benedict insisting on these timeless truths and on authority. Meanwhile, Francis is saying, we've been arguing about whether women can speak in church. And, and by the way, that sounds familiar. Or we've been arguing about how to make gay people's lives harder. Again, sounds familiar. Divorce. We've been arguing about divorce. Meanwhile, there's a great evil that has emerged, and that is more and more and more people are being dispossessed. There's greater inequality. There's all kinds of evil. The powers are out of control. We get lost on these things. But the thing about certainty, you don't have to give up on the notion of eternal timeless truth and still change your mind about what that truth may may be. You know, if you say, I don't know that I believe that anymore. It's not that you're saying there's no such thing as truth. It's that you're saying, I'm not sure that what I believed was the truth yet. Maybe I was wrong. The idea that these are the timeless truths, that's the end of it, and we've got to protect this, that's not faith. Was, was it narcissism? Yes, narcissism. That's not faith in the truth. That's faith in yourself and that you have that truth. Mm-hmm. That's what we try to say in our interpretation class what the way I used to try and get them to do is is get off. Stop saying I know just for a little while, because when you say I know this, the subject is I, the faith is in I rather than this truth. That's why I think that maintaining some sense of Scripture as authoritative is helpful, because I want the authority to be placed there mm. as opposed <laughs> to me. But that doesn't mean that. These things that I've taken from it, these understandings are the authoritative thing. And that's, I think, that's a real battle that we're having is to react to the the fundamentalists. And fundamentalism is when you've placed that authority on these fundamental ideas, that's where the authority is. To question that, we want to leave out the very nature of authority, say, well, there's no authority. Well, you're still doing the same thing where your authority ends up being in the believer rather than in the thing believed. Mm -hmm. This goes many directions. The thing that's playing out simultaneously in Catholicism and American, you know, the American political moment, it's not that these things are disconnected. I've just been reading, it's a fairly old book, but it's about the theocons that traces then the particular fusion of our moment 
with the rise around first things of the fusion between uh, key Catholic thinkers, and it was some Catholic intellectuals that shape, in fact, the fusion or the idea. You know, we often think of the idea of the American Christian nation as an old idea, and of course we all know that's a a fairly recent idea. Certainly it, it is happening with Reagan. In a sense, the evangelicals and Christians were disenchanted with Reagan. And so it actually is with the Bush administration that you have the rise of uh, conservative Catholics, and they're then capturing the moment and joining hands with fundamentalist evangelicals in a kind of notion that the way that the Christianity plays out is in a role of America as the city set upon the hill and that we have a cultural civilizational clash even and that in this clash you know especially after 9-11 that it's uh, Islam is the enemy and that it is a literal war you know that it's so if you go back to the early speeches of Bush right after the 9-11 He's quoting scripture in a way that, I mean, he's weaving it in. Reagan had done it a little bit, but Bush is going to take it a step further. And what you're getting then is the picture of America fighting a kind of holy war for truth, justice, freedom. All of these things then are on the American side. And the way that we will gain this freedom is in in and through literal killing. In other words, he, he talks about the destruction of evil. And of course, what he means by the destruction of evil is the destruction of America's enemies. What's happening within Catholicism is not disconnected from what's happening in this political moment. That in American evangelicalism, we're very much in the Benedict mode, I think. There is a clinging to a kind of notion of truth that it's in some way connected to empire, to a kind of stasis, to a kind of institutional understanding of truth that in fact has produced great evil, I think, both in the American situation, but within the Catholic Church. In other words, the the Catholic Church is in crisis. And I think that the crisis and the shift then in thought within Catholicism is not removed. It's the same thing, that, or it's a very similar thing that's unfolding in American evangelicalism and its ties to the institutional structures of you know, the nation state. It's, uh, it is tied to the nation state. It's also very certain of itself. Think about the language of, is it the Declaration of Independence? We hold these truths to be self-evident. There is no question in the minds of the sort of fundamentalist, in the fundamentalist mm-hmm. mindset about what is true. Very Lockean. Very in, they're very dialed in and we've got it. And so, yeah, the others are the enemy in, in that case. I was also thinking that, isn't it interesting how when you have these fundamentalist you hold on tight to these fundamentalist things. It doesn't require a ton from you anymore. And you notice that that somehow, I I haven't been able to make the connection or draw the line of the connection completely in the movie, but in the background is the sexual scandals that were left unanswered 
This is also coming out in the Southern Baptist churches. The, the new president of the Southern Baptist Convention has come out and said, look, we have let that go on. Why is it that in these fundamentalist, hold tight to the truth kind of movements, you also are willing to let all kinds of evil, things like sexual predation of children go on? Go ahead. Go ahead. All that he says in a moment when, when he's discussing out in the garden and they're discussing everything they had always been afraid of and all the things they were trying to protect and defend. And he says, when all along, all the time, the danger was inside us. There's mm-hmm. something about certainty that precludes any sense of self-reflection about where one might be in the environment one might be in. Because you, you're trying to keep out something that is a threat. And you remember when he says, he's talking to the Jesuit priests. Yeah. And he says, but I'm trying to protect you. And the guy with the beard, who I really liked, he says, since when has it has this been about protecting ourselves? Since when was the cross about protecting ourselves from the cross? And, mm. and while that's happening, at the end with that idea of not protecting ourselves and being dispossessed even of our own body, even mm. of our own life, to lay that down, to give that up, he says at the end, he goes, we've already had instruction. We know that to love our enemies, the Lord placed a high quality on human life. If even for our enemies, we are to love them. So systems of injustice, economic systems, which value power and money Mm -hmm. over lives, Mm -hmm. even lives of enemies, we've already been told in the scriptures, that's not right. So at the same time that you're giving up and putting no value on your own life, Mm -hmm. you're adding this huge value and this high premium to the life of your enemy. I don't think you can do that kind of, of thinking inside these closed systems where you just have a list of things that make this machine work, a list of things that make people comfortable, that keep them from being near the other or anything that makes them feel uncomfortable. And and he says at one point, he goes, in order to keep that up and to keep people's attention away from those other conversations, you wind up being a salesman. Mm-hmm. He said, I don't want to be a salesman anymore. And that is the evangelical growth movement mm-hmm. um, about being a, about as deep as a puddle and you wind up just selling the things you you swear by your life that you know. And there's no room for an answer that I don't know. There's just no space for that. It is all this insidious thing that loops back over on itself over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it somehow is tied up with that certainty. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to have that. The opposite of certainty is not doubt. The opposite of certainty is is faith. Of course, the whole idea of having two popes, people don't want two popes because that obviously is going to create a potential authority problem, which one speaks authoritatively. And so that's only happened, as I understand it, one time. You know, And so you have actually Benedict, since he 
has become Pope Emeritus, is the title he's chosen. He actually has written a letter then on the issue of the sex scandal. And of course, one wonders if he himself has a grasp on the nature of that scandal. He attributes it to the, you know, the 60s and the loosening up of uh, sexual mores. And the sex scandal predates that, in, in fact, in the Catholic Church. And it seems that that really was at least one of the forces beyond the financial scandals that drove him out of the church. In other words, this, this issue, this thing that has literally caused you know, the crisis in the Roman Catholicism, and I think it is certainly the, a crisis that's unfolding throughout fundamentalism, evangelicalism, uh, the megachurch movement. Same crisis, same sort of scandal. That at root, then, there is, I think, Vanjie, what you're describing, a kind of notion of a legalism almost. And legalism may not capture the, the, the sense of it, but that certainty or that traditionalism or that, that sense of, of a law that in some way is definitive turns out to reduplicate what Paul is describing as pitting myself against myself. That is, that one becomes out of control in imagining that there is the law of the mind and the law of the body. That is, it's a kind, it, it gives rise to a kind of disembodied, uh, out-of-control condition. Yes, and it's all expressed economically. Once you've got this certainty and we know these things, these are self-evident, these are the truths, all that's really left to do is just to sell that, to try to make it uh, as attractive and, and approachable as possible for people. When Bergoglio says, I, I don't want to be a salesman anymore, he's saying, I want to be offering something real as opposed to selling this product and this, this certainty and this experience. So on the one hand, yeah, it's it's expressed economically, but then... It's also tied to the economics of the world, like money. Now that we, we have truth and comfort and security, the job is to protect it and to try to sell it. Product. They make sure there's an enemy that we need to blame for our problems, and we got to keep them out or we got to keep them at bay. And both of these things are also scarcity model, right? I mean, if what we believe is the truth, if we hold that the stories in Scripture are true and they tell us something true about God, then why be so threatened by the fact that there are people who don't think so? Why are they the enemy? If we believe in the Christmas story, why are we fighting a war about it? Why do people think that the whole Christmas story ends up being about powers that tried to respond to a, a different kind of Jewish king and they did it, the state tried to kill him. So the idea that evangelicals believe that there's a war on Christmas, which is just an expression for, I think, what they really think is that there's a war against their way of thinking. That is a fear-based response. That is a scarcity model that says there's enemies out there, and they're trying to get us, and they're trying to take apart our way of life. But if what you believe is true, then you shouldn't be afraid of that. Maybe we could describe it as a zero-sum game. 
and that in an economy of lack, there is so much stuff to go around, even to describe salvation in terms of an economy, that money, er, everything fuses around, you know, that, that everything, in a sense, then takes on a significance, that it all is representation of being, in a sense, this is sort of the Kierkegaardian point, that in some way, what we would do is establish our being, and you might do that then through the institution, through money, through sex. In other words, there's many avenues in which you would gain being, in which life, in fact, it's death. I mean, what's being traded is not life in reality, but it's a, a, a culture of death in which uh, people are then imagine that they're obtaining life in and through death-dealing activity, whether it's sexual perversion, whether it's financial corruption, or just simply uh, overt moral corruption as, as seen in the film with uh, aligning with right-wing military dictatorships. That this is real-world evil in which life really is on, you know, seemingly on the line. It's sort of like the Terrence Malick movie, which I've not seen, uh, that a, a very similar thing. You know, you have a a man who defies becoming or uh, swearing allegiance to the Nazis. And the refrain, I understand, that is there in the film is, well, you understand, we're just, we're going to kill you and your life is not going to have mattered, that your moral objection to all of this is a, a totally inconsequential. It means nothing. And that's really in a world in which the powers define the game entirely, that morality, human value is all put on the market. And as soon as it is, in some way, it's devalued. In other words, it's, uh, it's there to be traded. And I think in a basic way of looking at it, I, I don't mean to oversimplify or deconstruct to a point of ridiculous reduction, but I just don't think you can operate out of love and fear at the same time mm. well in any coherent right. fashion. That's why John says perfect love casts out fear. Mm. Yeah. I've been in enough staff meetings either as, a, as an elder, as a staff member, as a staff member's wife, as a consultant, where they're trying to bring up an issue, whether it's What's going to happen if we bring in a huge special needs population to this church? What's going to happen if we are open to this homosexual couple that's coming? What's going to happen if we ordain a woman? Any of those things. And rather than the question being, how do we love while we're doing this and handle the tensions of that love? Because the, the great quote at the end of the movie was, truth without love is unbearable. So the tensions of living in love with someone and living with peace, there's a lot of tension in living peacefully, <laughs> I have found out. But instead, all the questions surrounding all those issues that I've ever been a part of in those conversations tended to focus on fear-based reasoning. Well, what are the reasons why we should be afraid if we embrace this couple the same-sex couple? What are the reasons um, we should be afraid if we were to ordain this woman? 
or let women have a greater role in church? Um, why should we be afraid if we hire someone that's been divorced? Or and right on the heels of that is, what change should we fear based on us doing this? Not how do we love, and that goes straight to the heart of the political climate. Yep. Like you said, it's everything is about why we should be afraid of being open with our borders, why we should be afraid if these people come and they, they work. It's making them the other, which is making them an object of fear. None of those conversations were love-based. And I, I just I just don't think you can operate out of both. And well, I feel like that's what Francis kind of decided. Especially when the model of love we have is Jesus. I actually had a minister one time say, well, you know, I suppose we need to look to the business world to figure out ways to have these conversations. Okay. And I said, no, we, we turn to Jesus. He's the one that tells us how to love and how to treat each other. And the model of Jesus' love is he would die on the cross for his enemies. And so the reason that building a wall on the border, and I, and I get that that's the state, but the issue is that most of the folks I know who claim to follow Jesus are cheerfully for building a wall on the border. The reason that is anti-Christ, it wants to make sure that those poor people's problems remain those poor people's problem rather than taking on. Because, I, I mean, the, the bottom line is that, yeah, if welcome this, this couple into your church— there will be a political price to pay. If you say we're going to ordain women, yeah, that's going to cost you something because to pick up the cross with somebody is to take on some of that oppression, take off some of their oppression. You have to take that on. And so you have to share in that oppression. It's always the first people through the wall to get the bloodiest, but then the second people are going to get bloody too. So yeah, the, there is a real danger when somebody says, well, you just have this pie-in-the-sky view about these illegal immigrants, and I use quotes when I'm doing illegal about people that are coming from Guatemala, and I'm like, no, I have no pie-in-the-sky view. I understand that a few dangerous people may come in with them, but that's the cross that, that we bear to love our neighbors. And the simple truth is, one of the reasons they're having to run is because we've been all too willing to put somebody else on the cross in order to make our lives more comfortable. That is what scarcity thinking does. We're going to take more so we can have for ourselves and be as comfortable and secure as possible. And that means we have to push somebody else out. We, we want to think that, well, no, that's their fault that they're poor. But unfortunately, in order for us to have more, they have to have less. That means that bearing a cross, ultimately bearing a cross with Jesus, means that we have to embrace being less secure and being less safe, being less rich, and to acknowledge that there's enough for everybody. Because there is enough for everybody if we're not hoarding it. I think, this, I think that James... This is exactly what he says when he condemns the rich who have hoarded wealth in the last days. I felt very much like the, the way Pope Francis was going in the film very much tied in with James's warnings about 
hoarding of wealth and justice for the poor and the worker. What Francis is doing, I guess we have to ask a basic question, that it would seem that by its very nature, that institutional stability, national stability, the way that we create entities that in, in some way are going to be able to function and operate and gain momentum in this world, that by definition they're going to function as a power resource that would seem to be over and against a New Testament understanding. I, I would go as far as to call it antichrist. And part of the tension with the idea of the two popes was was that his first question was, and and who speaks with authority, is that it dissipated the power that there needed to be a localized, concentrated power in order for this to work, and that this was a dissipation of those powers and therefore a weakening of the whole structure. I think that that very much. <laughs> bleeds over into the evangelical context that we've got to have some kind of structure that is a power that protects us. But as that priest said, when did this become about protecting ourselves? Since when? And even if I do see that those people are my enemies, even if I view every person from over the border of the United States as my enemy, I've been instructed mm -hmm. how to act towards my enemies and the value to place on their life. Mm -hmm. Even if they are, I've been told oh, how to treat my enemies from across the border and from inside the border. Yeah. These things are only obvious if you've stopped reading the New Testament as a treatise on what's the what's the formula for going to heaven. And you've taken the whole concept of Christianity as a lifestyle and um, is that it's about the form of your life, the form of life as opposed to the content of, of your belief statements. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.